there's a ghost town near Williamsburg, Virginia, that became a backbone for TNT production, and during World War I was the largest artillery shell loading plant in the nation. The men went off to war, and the women stayed behind to work and live in the town. Come with me now as we explore the ghost town of the Canary Girls. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Midwest Ghost Town, the ghost town of the Canary Girls. This is Dan, I'm your host, your history enthusiast, and your ghost town adventurer and storyteller. Today we're going to carry on from the last episode where we shared a story of the DuPont Company, their history and their influence on war and especially the manufacturing of explosive powders. That led to the company expanding into the mining industry and the making of blasting powders. I talked about diving into wormholes in the research process, a process of investigating something, finding a clue or hint, and following that trail, or as I call it, a wormhole, and having it lead you to a whole new story. Well, this was one of them. I discovered Powder Town down in the southeast corner of Iowa, which was an abandoned company town by DuPont, and I asked the question, what other towns were boom and bust behind the manufacturing giant DuPont. And it led me outside of the Midwest to the state of Virginia. A little disclaimer, for those of you who are new, we cover the history and stories of ghost towns and abandoned places. And of course, as the title Midwest Ghost Town suggests, we do spend a lot of time in the Midwest, but there are a lot of instances that take us outside the Midwest as well. And this is one of them. This is the story of Pennyman, Virginia. And really, the story of Pennyman has two stories. I'll attempt to tell them both, especially since they are both interwoven with each other, two different threads, but making them in the same cloth, which is, number one, the first story of DuPont and the founding of its company town, Pennyman, which was originally formed to manufacture dynamite. And number two, the second story which surrounds itself around the women behind the scenes and working at the DuPont plant as munitionettes or the making of artillery shells and known as the Canary Girls. We'll get more into that in a moment, but for now, let's start with the ghost town of Pennyman. The early 1900s saw the increasing need for explosives, whether for mining or railroad construction and expansion, and DuPont, right at the center of manufacturing explosives, built several company towns. Pennyman was picked for its perfect location, which is about six miles outside of Williamsburg, Virginia, for those who are wondering, and it lined the York River, which fed into the Chesapeake Bay. DuPont picked locations that were often in the middle of nowhere both for safety reasons, since a lot of their products tended to just go boom, and being away from large groups of populations and cities made sense, but also for the security and secrecy of their manufacturing. Pennyman was no exception, and in 1916 the land was levied out, but the entire landscape of the industry changed nearly overnight, as America entered World War I, known as the War to end all wars. And DuPont shifted from making dynamite to making artillery shells for the war and manufacturing TNT. 
the town boomed overnight. It was said that when the town went up, construction workers drove nails so fast that you couldn't see the hammers. Workers were so urgently needed that any man that applied was given work whether he was skilled or not. The rush to work for DuPont became so big that it drained the local labor force for the farms around the area, and they were depleted. Crops were rotting in the field because the workers had left, and the wages were so high so it drew large amounts of workers, and the farmers couldn't keep up. The new job would require a huge facility, in fact, the largest in the nation, but along with this, an operational village pre-built. So the workers had a place to live naturally, and that village could house about 12,000 workers. But Pennyman grew larger, a population of 20,000, with half or more working at the plant. Miles of railroad track were constructed. Dormitories, apartment buildings, duplexes, single homes, followed by a bank, drugstore, hospital, hotel, two cafeterias, a YMCA and a YWCA, a post office, barbershop, beauty salon, a jail, a fire station, and more. The village had electricity, a sewer system, water, and paved roads. Pennyman was alive and well thanks to the war, but the landscape shifted when more and more men were sent overseas to fight, creating a new problem, a need for workers. And all eyes shifted to women. More on that after this. Hey there, Dan here with Midwest Ghost Town. We look at this space as a growing community. You can reach out to me at midwestghosttown at gmail.com, which I've had quite a few already. Love hearing from you. And you can also reach me through YouTube or wherever you download your podcast. I love hearing from you. And maybe you have a town or a story or two yourself. I love to hear about it. With that, I want to share a message I received opening this up for anyone who might know anything about this as well. This is from Becky who writes, Hello, ran across your podcast. I recently tried to locate family burial spots in Iowa. I found my great-great-grandma was buried in Port Louisa, Iowa. While this is not a ghost town, a person tied to the cemetery shared a story that one of the cemeteries along the river was washed away during a major flood. Yes, caskets and bodies of the deceased, which is why I was struggling finding her burial spot. This event would have been mid to late 1800s, not sure if something you cared to pursue, but thought it was an interesting story. Becky first, sorry to hear that tragic story about the flood washing away a cemetery. That's the hard part with the research on some of these projects. That's even though the cemeteries are protected, it doesn't necessarily protect them from natural disasters and events like tornadoes or floods. And I even think about the time I was visiting a cemetery out in Nebraska. One of the gravestones on the edge of the lot was exposed to the elements and the stone was in pretty bad shape. It was caked with mud. The groundskeepers, you know, they do the best they can, but Mother Nature is Mother Nature, as we obviously know. And it reminds me... To help when I can. You learned something big enough, though. You mentioned Port Louisa, which lies on the banks of the mighty Mississippi, and just how powerful that river can get during a flood. You asked if it was anything I'd like to pursue, and I'll surely write it down and look more into it. However, in the meantime, 
I open it up to anybody listening. If you know any more about that, it would be helpful if the storyteller knew a little more specifics about the flood. Um, As the Mississippi, as we know it, has had numerous historical floods through the years capable of doing what you mentioned, one that comes immediately to mind, just an example, is the great Mississippi flood of 1927. It's still known as the most destructive flood in U.S. history, affecting 27,000 square miles with depths up to 30 feet in a period of over several months. Many levees failed and broke as a result of the flooding on this one, and it is famous that it even cemented itself into rock and roll history with the Led Zeppelin song, When the Levee Breaks. Just a side note on that. Now, this was not the flood that washed away your great-great-grandma's grave, obviously. But it paints a picture of how strong and wild the Mississippi could get. Looking into your great-great-grandma's grave being flooded, I see that she would have died around 1860 from some of the records that I saw that you sent me. So some of the great floods after 1860 that might have played a factor, and this is for anybody listening if you're interested in pursuing this and want to look more into this as well, Um, The floods that occurred after that date, the flood of 1874, the flood of 1882 and 83 and 84. So we had back-to-back years there. Those floods were terrible in the 82, 83, and 84. The flood of 1890, the flood of 1893, and the flood of 1897. And as you can see, I mentioned about seven Mississippi River floods here, and that is telling of what we're dealing with and the sheer wildness of the Mississippi and the amount of flooding and devastation. In fact, in one of my earlier YouTube videos, I explore the ghost town area of Centipede, Wisconsin. That's an interesting video if you want to go check that out. It's one of my older videos, but there isn't anything left there except for the cemetery on top of the bluff. Interesting story about Centipede if you want to look more into that. It kind of revolves around the transcontinental railroad um, and there's so much more history there it's pretty cool but it's the same result endless flooding from the mississippi was a big problem and concern for river communities and it wasn't just the devastation from the rising waters and fast moving flood currents but it's what came after the mass amounts of mosquitoes that brought malaria disease wiping out the population And I can tell you before I go on, that's exactly what happened in Centipede. A large percent, anyway, were wiped out because of disease. If anyone has any information on any of these floods that I mentioned, or the washing away of graves in or around Port Louisa, Iowa, would love to hear from you. You can reach out to me via MidwestGhostTown at gmail.com or on any of the podcast platforms or on YouTube. Okay, back to our story at hand, Pennyman, Virginia, a ghost town created by the boom and bust of a company town, Fort DuPont, and the making of artillery shells. There is more on the town itself, but I mentioned earlier on a second story that presents itself through the stories of women who showed up to work on the front lines of the plant when the men were shipped off to fight in the war. And the women came. They came to work and take the place of the men, with the job of loading powder TNT into artillery shells, a fine powder which the women were not adequately protected against for the prolonged exposure to the chemicals, which turned out to be hazardous, by the way, to the women's health, and especially with their skin, turning it, along with their nails, 
a dark yellow, and turning their lips a dull purple, which gave them the nickname Canary Girls. Now the Canary Girls, they called them, and it was more than a badge of honor. Though they sacrificed themselves working with dangerous explosives and helping the war efforts, they were literally outcasts in their own communities. I wouldn't call that a badge of honor. Almost a sense of humility as they were working around the plants and out in their communities. They weren't allowed to sit with others out and about in restaurants or cafeterias. Their yellow skin marking them and condemning them. Socially distanced. And though the yellow color faded in time, there were long-term effects with this, including an assault against their immune system, liver failure, anemia, organ enlargement and damage, cancer, and infertility. If the long-term effects weren't enough, it was also the immediate danger they put themselves in, handling explosives. If you get a chance to check my page on X, formerly known as Twitter, you can see a picture I posted there of two women handling shells with literally thousands of explosives surrounding them. And all I can think of is one of these fell, or if there was a little explosion of any kind, a spark, that whole place is going up. And my X profile is Daniel Klein. You go check that picture out if you want, just so you can kind of get an idea and see that you'll see, you know, these two women sitting there and they're just surrounded. And all I thought was, oh my goodness. It just gives you a, a big picture. And just to paint another picture of just how dangerous this was, I went to another site honoring the Canary Girls worldwide, by the way. So beyond just Pennyman. And most of these were found in Great Britain. This is for a memorial initiative and what they stood for. And this is on canary-girls.com. Canary-girls.com which I'll put in the show notes, by the way. Listen to some of the personal accounts and stories of some of these brave and courageous women. January 1917. There were approximately 50 tons of TNT that exploded, killing 73 and injuring 400 more. One day, there were 19 girls filling trays with fuses and one of the fuses went off setting off the rest of the fuses and exploding the tray. One of the girls working the tray was killed outright and her body disintegrated. Two girls standing behind her were partially shielded, but both were seriously injured, and one fatally. The factory was damaged and the roof was blown off with electrical fittings hanging out and about, and one of the walls was swaying in the breeze. Listen to another story. Shells would be filled with TNT, and a detonator added if needed to be tapped down by hand very carefully. You tap too hard, and it could, and it did, explode. Women lost fingers, hands, regularly suffered burns, and many were blinded. One woman gave birth to her child, who came out yellow in color. Another count of a woman who was both blind and lost both hands in an accident gave birth and never saw or held her baby. Plant explosions were common, like the one that occurred in 1918, a blast killing 134 workers and injuring 250. Eight tons of TNT had detonated without warning. An eyewitness account shared that people were running with their clothes burnt and torn, their faces charred and some bleeding, limbs torn off, eyes and hair gone. 
These were all accounts of the Canary Girls worldwide. But the stories in Pennyman pressed on. The town boomed. And though some of the men were gone fighting overseas, it didn't slow Pennyman down. People rushed to local businesses. And there were long lines at both restaurants, banks, and even the post office had waits to drop off their mail. It was the most modern town in Virginia. And everything was flourishing. Until 1918, when the Spanish flu arrived right after this. Dan here, Midwest Ghost Town. We have a lot of great content coming up to you weekly, every Thursday. Consider subscribing, but whether you choose to or not, I'm just thankful you're here, period. I love hearing from you, so consider reaching out. Good news, my podcast website is up and running. You can follow along at any of the places where you get your podcasts, or you can also catch me at MidwestGhostTown.com. Next week, an episode, we have the ghost town of Old Hickory, down in Tennessee. This is another DuPont company town. Finds itself right in the middle of the production of new invention, smokeless gunpowder, which changed everything in modern warfare right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Hope you come along. All right, more of the story of what's going on in Pennyman around 1918. And as I mentioned right before the break, the Spanish flu comes and presents itself pandemics. We had an experience with one here a few years ago with COVID, so all of us can identify a story or two and are familiar with the word pandemic. But nothing had seen the scale of what the Spanish flu brought to the states, and Pennyman was no exception. Public gatherings were illegal. You were not allowed to gather together in groups. Schools were closed and soon opened up for space for hospitals as the number of sick exploded. Public funerals were outlawed, and people were ordered to wear gauze masks wherever they went outside. Anything sound familiar? The Daily Press, which was the local newspaper in the area, reported on the local funeral home and their undertaker, who had to use a truck to haul bodies from Pennyman. There weren't a lot of coffins available. Locals recalled observing coffins stacked to the ceiling at the local train depot. By October 1918, 6,000 Virginians were reported dead. Funeral homes in Williamsburg were full, and their baggage cars were always full of caskets. In fact, so many died that DuPont ran out of burial space at the plant site, and the excess bodies were buried at the undertaker's farm. The entire town was like walking through an apocalypse. People were dying. There didn't seem to be any end in sight. A month later, in November, DuPont closed the TNT plant in Pennyman and sent many back to their homes away from Virginia by train. Those who remained helped tear down and dismantle the town. Equipment was sold and houses moved or torn down. Now, I will tell you, I found an interesting research online as I was going through this, finding different accounts of some of these homes that they talked about that they were moving them. The ones that weren't tore down, some of these pictures that I saw online, they were moving them on barges down the river to different sites. I thought that was very interesting. But by 1920, Pennyman was gone. It was a ghost town. Gone as fast as it appeared. Pennyman may be gone. 
but its spirit and stories live on. Through the stories of those who laid down their lives and through the stories of the Canary Girls, the women who stepped up to help the war efforts by filling in for men who left to fight in the war, stepping into dangerous jobs, giving them yellow skin, toxic lives at the hands of TNT. Ghost towns and abandoned places are just a name on a map or a name in our distant memory. But it's the stories left behind that makes a ghost town what it is. Pennyman is no different. And as we remember this company town and those who lived, worked, and died there, let it be a reminder to us to keep history alive. This is Midwest Ghost Town.